Welcome. I'm Warner Deschillet, and this is a Baha'i Perspective. Welcome to a Baha'i Perspective. I recorded an interview with Alhan Irwin, her brother Abir Majid, and her sister Ruwa Bakorni on April 27, 2021. Their mother, Anissa Abdul Razak Abbas, wrote a memoir entitled Without Hesitation about her imprisonment for being a Baha'i in Iraq. Alhan translated the book into English and we discussed not only her mother's imprisonment, but her father's and her brother Abir's experience in prison, all for the same reason. I started the interview by asking Alhan's brother Abir where their family grew up and what was religious life like growing up. I grew up and my siblings and uh, the author, my mom, in Baghdad, Iraq. The country at that time was more secular than religious or a moderate mix between the two. For members of the Baha'i community, because it's a Muslim country, the Baha'i faith has been persecuted, as it is in many other Muslim countries. But in each country, the extent and the type of persecution has been different. So even though before our generation grew up, there were some forms of persecution, they were relatively mild compared to other countries like Iran, the neighboring country. But when we grew up, our early years of childhood were very peaceful and happy. And even though our neighbors and our teachers and classmates all knew that we were Baha'is, nobody bothered us until the early 60s when, for political reasons, the country used religion as a means of establishing itself and as a scapegoat Baha'is were persecuted. So we ended up with our places of worship and Baha'i centers and other properties confiscated. In the Baha'i faith we don't have clergy but we do have Baha'i administration. So all Baha'i administration was disbanded and it even came to confiscating old Baha'i books from our homes. So it became difficult to live as Baha'is. We had to rely on uh, things we had memorized in the past, and we had to help each other learn about our faith verbally. So that's how it was when, when we grew up. You all emigrated from Iraq. Did you all leave Iraq at the same time as a family? We did not. Actually, it was in reverse age that we left the country. Roa, my youngest sister, left first on the pretense of spending the summer in uh, Turkey, a neighboring country. And then uh, my sister Alhan followed her. I was uh, not hopeful at all that I would be able to leave the country, but I lucked out with a specific job that uh, ended up deputizing me to go train abroad. And that was the way we left. But what precipitated all of this was a, a heightened level of persecution that is actually the topic of the 
book and this interview, which was the imprisonment of our parents and many other Baha'is uh, a few years earlier to our departure. Your mother, Anissa Abdul Razak Abbas, I hope I pronounced that. Yes. Right. You did a great job. Yes. <laughs> okay, thank yes. you. So she wrote an account of her persecution called Without Hesitation, which Alhan, you translated. Yes. Her account of being a prisoner of conscience was during the era of Saddam Hussein. Yes. Um, I guess my first question, was it difficult translating the story into English, knowing what happened to her, and also trying to maintain that same voice of your mother? It was very difficult for several reasons. One of them is those years were very traumatic for us, especially for uh, my sister and I. She was under 13 years old at that time, and I had to assume the responsibility of taking care of her because we were the only case that both parents were incarcerated. Most of the other Baha'is, either the mother or the father or the son, taken to prison. But our case was very unique because both our parents were taken. So the trauma of those years had an impact on our life. When I was translating the book, a lot of raw emotions just came to the surface, and I really struggled with that a lot. I had to leave sometimes translating the book for a week or two, even one time I left it for six months. I just was having a very difficult time going through it. But in the end, it ended up to be really a healing thing for me to go over this. So yes, it was a difficult task and also to read all the details of her suffering and the suffering of others. By the way, our mother wanted to make sure that she wrote about her own experience, not the experience of others. Although she does mention the names of the other prisoners, they were a total of 10 women and 19 men that end up in prison. And by the way, our brother Abir was one of the initially arrested people, and he suffered imprisonment for a few months, too. So, Abir, what was it like for you when you got arrested? I was in a different city at the time when the arrest happened in Baghdad, the capital of Iraq. I was in the north of Iraq attending college at the time, but I did hear about the arrest, and I knew that my father had been one of those people arrested. And because one of the main personalities that instigated all of these events and happenings was a colleague of mine, a fellow student at the same university. I knew that it would be just a matter of time for me to be arrested. And at that time, I did not know that my mom was arrested. So I wanted to go to Baghdad and say goodbye to her before they would come to get me. I didn't know that I would be intercepted on my way to Baghdad, and that was my initial contact with the security forces, the Department of the Interior. So I had to spend one night in the city where I was arrested, and then about a week in a different city, and then two and a half months in another location afterwards being interrogated. Then I was released on bail, and then there was a summons to go to court, and we ended up with a second time of arrest because the court was postponed, but they would not let us go out on bail anymore. It was difficult. 
maybe you could describe how it was difficult. Well, the uh, interrogators would always accuse you of lying to them when you tell them the truth, when you tell them that is a big tenant of your faith and the whole reason why you're arrested because of your belief system, which prohibits lying, they would say, no, you're just lying about that. Also, we grew up in a very refined house and uh, we were not exposed to harsh treatment or bad words. Those interrogators would use all kinds of intimidation and insults and curses and even physical violence. I did not experience that in the beginning, but uh, I know other prisoners did. And the transportation from all of these different locations would be in the middle of the winter months. And even though Iraq has a moderate climate, but not in the early morning hours or in December. So the transport was always in open trucks with wind blowing against your face and uh, your body. You're in handcuffs, so you can't even like hold your hands across your chest to keep warm. And then uh, the uh, interrogations usually would happen after midnight, so you're deprived of sleep. And again, all of the cursing, all of the intimidation and shouting and all of that, it was not easy to go through all of that. I'm sure. I'm sure. And Abir, you said initially they didn't use violence toward you, but you implied that maybe they had later on in your imprisonment? It wasn't during my imprisonment. The story goes into many stages. So there was an interrogation period for a few months, and then there was a trial that lasted a long time with a lot of postponements back and forth. And then there was the sentencing I was found guilty, but my sentence was to pay a fine while my parents were sentenced for long periods, 10 years for my mom and 20 for my dad. But five years after all of these events, I was summoned again to the security forces. I was asked if I was still Baha'i, and when I told them that I was, then I was subjected to some harsh treatment, including some physical uh, abuse, like with the... There's something in the Middle East called the bastinado, which is they uh, hold your feet up in the air, bare feet, with a tight rope against them so that your blood would be restricted. And then they would beat on it with ticks until you cry uncle. (laughs) So I was subjected to that type of treatment. But that was five years after I was out, after I paid my fine. That was also like one reason why it was imperative for my sisters and I to leave the country, even though our we did not want to leave our parents. But at the same time, we did not want them to know that we were suffering because they endured imprisonment uh, very bravely and very contentedly for the sake of their beliefs but as long as their children were safe. And then we could not tell them that we were not safe. So it was better for us to leave the country so that they knew that we were safe. That's why we left the country, but separately. What was the charge that they used against you? There was a period of progressively harsher and harsher pressures on Baha'is to give up their religion. 
until finally in 1970 there was a an actual law that forbade what they called Baha'i activity. They did not def define what Baha'i activity was, but it was on the books, law 105 hmm. in 1970 that forbade Baha'i activities. So we were all accused of violating that law. I know your mother had written an account, but before we get to that, do you know what your father's imprisonment was like since he was in prison the longest? Yes, I was with him for part of that. Afterwards, we were, in a way, relatively speaking, lucky enough to be able to visit them once a month or so. So while we were not with them on a daily basis, those visits were not behind a glass barrier like we see in the movies in the United States. But we actually would be sitting on the edge of the bed with them and maybe spend an hour and share a meal with them, things that we would take to them. We would ask them how their days were. And they went through different periods of being very harshly treated in the beginning. And then when jailers become sympathetic and start liking them, things would get better. And then those jailers would be replaced because they're not harsh enough. So up and down between harsh treatment and less harsh treatment. But they uh, had a ward mostly to themselves. So they just spent their time together, maybe when... They were not being watched closely. They would say prayers together. They would share their meals. And maybe for a couple of hours a day, they could walk in the yard outdoors. And Alhan, what was prison life like for your mother? Well, prison years were the most proud years of her life. She always said that. In fact, she instructed us to bury her in her prison gown that she brought with her to the United States. And her wish was granted, and that's how we buried her. At the same time, she didn't sugarcoat the uh, harshness of prison. In fact, she says, perhaps prison is the harshest punishment invented by man for his fellow man. When a prisoner is made captive by another human being who doesn't understand her or his circumstances, the prisoner will feel oppressed and suppressed. So that was something that she very candidly explained how difficult it was to be in that environment that was very strange to them and also witness such injustice around them intermingling with other prisoners. And some of those prisoners were innocent and had tragic stories, but others were uh, horrible kind of people. So they had to witness a lot of sad and moving stories Therefore, you know, it was not very easy. And the hardest thing for our mother, who was an extraordinary mother, really, is leaving us behind. So that is something that she was the most eager to be with her children because the other ladies, they were actually five young ladies and five older. So she was one of the older. The older ladies, their children were all grown up or they didn't have any and the younger ladies were not married. 
So their circumstances were different than hers. She was always worried about us being left without both parents. So that was a source of worry for her. But there was no other way or another choice for her. She would not have chosen any other way but to sacrifice everything for her belief. And, of course, the account is called Without Hesitation, which the title implies that your mother had no hesitation to face the persecution against her. Was your mother always brave like that before she was imprisoned? Yes. Actually, my sister, Rua, can read just a little part of that first page about the title. It explains to you a little bit more about our mother. Hi, this is Rua Pokorni. I'm the youngest of the three siblings, the author's youngest daughter. So this is what she writes in the first couple of pages. The difficult equation, the decisive experience in my life, was one human vulnerability and weakness wrestled with the majesty of God and his will. The loud cry of motherhood nearly deafened my ears and created a haze that would have veiled his splendor from my eyes had it not been for his providence that came to my rescue. The his here is in reference to God. His words shone brightly in the core of my soul, and they poured down like pure drops of water that silenced that call and cleared my vision, so I could take my path and make my choice without hesitation. As Baha'u'llah has revealed, and Baha'u'llah is the prophet founder of the Baha'i faith, as Baha'u'llah has revealed, wouldst thou have me seek none other than me, and wouldst thou gaze upon my beauty, close thine eyes to the world and all that is therein. I think your question before Ruwa read was about our mother's uh, bravery or... Yes. Maybe Ruwa can also talk about that for a little bit. Sure. Well, a lot of the times when I tell our story as we were growing up and what we had to endure during those years of imprisonment, a lot of people would say, wow, you're very brave. Uh, I remember when I was a high school student going through those difficulties and many of my friends would say, boy, you're a mountain. How can you? would stand all of this. To me, nothing I can be and any display of courage would really truly pale in comparison to what I know of my mom and her courage all her life. The stories that I know of her, right from her childhood, all throughout her young adulthood, she was really the example of courage. She was a very confident, self-assured young woman left her home and her family at the very young age of 19 years and went on her own and traveled and lived in a foreign country where she met my father in Egypt. She went to college at Alexandria University in Egypt. Her life in general was quite adventurous, actually. There was really nothing that she was afraid of undertaking. And clearly her steadfast in the faith and her dedication to Baha'u'llah, despite all the difficulties, would be a really good example of what a courageous person she was. Do you have a story that you could tell about her younger years? 
Well, there's an anecdotal story that comes to mind, which is funny. I don't recall the reason why she felt the urgency to leave Egypt. And there were no flights available. There was only one tiny little private two-seater two-seater airplane that she describes that she just took without hesitation from Egypt to Lebanon. She describes it as going up and down. There were some turbulence, like a little feather floating in, in, a, in a very angry sea. Again, she was just one of those people that she was very gutsy. She made a lot of decisions that women of those days, and we're talking late 40s and early 50s, really did not do, whether in the Middle East or really anywhere else in the world. What is the status of the Baha'i faith in Iraq now? The Baha'i faith continued to be persecuted throughout the rule of Saddam Hussein and his Ba'ath party. But when the United States invaded Iraq in 2003, the regime changed, of course, and there were different regions in the country that became semi-independent, including the Kurds in the north of Iraq. So in each one of these regions, the situation of the Baha'i faith has been slightly different. A lot of freedom in Kurdistan in the north of Iraq, a little bit less freedom in the central and southern regions because of the Shiite majority who had the major share in the government. But nonetheless, we talked earlier about the Baha'i faith not having clergy, but having an administrative order, uh, which includes grassroots elections of some governing bodies of the community on the local and central national level. This administration was able to be brought back after the invasion of the United States. So we can rejoice as Baha'is that we are able to form these administrative bodies again and meet again and have publication and be able to answer questions about our religion. Because in the past, even when people asked us in the street, what is this religion that you follow? We were not at liberty to answer because of that law prohibiting us from opening our mouth and talking about ourselves and about our religion. All of these things have gotten much better. They still have a long way to go because of the chaos and the influence of other countries such as Iran and Saudi Arabia neighboring to Iraq. But at least in the northern regions, there is a lot more freedom and things are much better. I don't know, Alhan, if you wanted to read another excerpt from Without Hesitation? Actually, Rua has a couple, if you don't mind, that okay. I chose for her. This is an excerpt describing how when she was first arrested, actually. I quickly said goodbye to my mother and daughters, walked with the two men, and headed toward their car. Inside that car was my brother-in-law, Saeed, who had brought them to find me at my mother's house. At first, I wasn't sure it was him at all. His face was pale, and he looked very tired. His white beard had grown long, and his head was down. 
I was used to seeing him with a shaved beard. We did not exchange any greetings as the circumstance did not allow for that. I was then taken to my home to get some blankets since it was very cold. The men asked if I had any money hidden in the house so they could steal it. But I had only a few dinars left. The men then drove us to the LM directorate. I was taken to a room where several of their men were, but no one spoke to me at all. The atmosphere was one of fear and suspense. The men were talking among themselves about crimes, arrests, weapons, and other matters that were of concern to them only. In between, there were periods of terrifying silence. Four hours passed and maybe more while I sat there without moving until someone came and ordered me in a rough manner and a stern voice to stand up. So I did. He had a long wool winter scarf in his hand, the kind men wear around their necks. And he started to twist it very hard until it became like a thick rope. I was watching him with no idea what he was about to do with it. He ordered me to turn around and quickly blindfolded me with the twisted scarf. The tightness around my head was unbearable and I asked him politely whether that was necessary as I was ready to honestly and truthfully answer any of their questions. But he did not respond. The pressure of the blindfold was so severe that I felt my eyes being pushed out of their sockets. Darkness was consuming me in a terrifying way for a reason I will explain later. The man took me by the hand and walked while I was stumbling. Every minute he asked me to lower my head, then raise it up, lower it again, and raise it up. We walked a long distance until we reached a stairway. He took me down into the darkness, many steps down, until we reached a very damp and unbearably cold cellar. I was seated on a small wooden bench, low to the ground. He began tightening my blindfold again, this time even harder. I felt his breath penetrating my neck while he said, empty your purse of all sharp items. I told him I did not have anything sharp and that he could check my purse if he wished to do so. He then ordered me not to try lifting the blindfold from my eyes and he left the place. I don't know if the next excerpt is going to explain her fear of darkness. Possibly. She had mentioned in another place about her childhood, just playing with the neighbors and when the evening came uh, and the dark alleys looked very scary. They imagined creatures like monsters coming to chase them and things. So she was always afraid of the dark. So, Ruwa, you have another excerpt? You'd I like do, to... one more. The night was one of the hardest nights of my life. I'm not sure which night she's referring to. Oh, this is the first night in prison. That night was one of the hardest nights of my life. I felt like a bird forced to be confined to a cage. 
I remembered when we had Iraqi nightingales in our home. We used to receive them as gifts from some of the believers from the town of Awashiq, which was famous for its beautiful singing nightingales. They gifted us young nightingales, chicks, so they could become accustomed to living in captivity and begin to sing. By contrast, mature birds can never get used to their cage and thus will not sing. I remember once we had an empty cage outside our house in the Al-Azamiya district. The cage's door was open and a large nightingale entered it. We were so thrilled to capture it and try to feed it and give it water, but it refused to accept its captivity and in protest kept banging its head on the sides of the cage until it began to bleed. We had no choice but to set it free. It flew away, making screeching noises that could have been in praise of its freedom or perhaps curses aimed at us for capturing it. These thoughts and emotions overwhelmed me during that fearsome night. I stood by the small window while looking at a distant dim light coming from the courtyard of the prison. I was that nightingale at the moment it was captured and the cage door was closed on it. And I was thinking of my daughters and son and how I was forced to be separated from them. I would have been just as distraught as that nightingale had it not been for God's tender mercy, which extinguished the flames blazing in my breast, in my heart. I turned myself wholly toward him and asked that he save me from my awful inclinations and bring peace and comfort to my heart. I stayed in that state of prayerfulness until dawn arrived. And I threw myself on a blanket outside that prison cell because I could not bear being confined inside such a tiny space with anyone. I needed solitude to reflect and to try to get some sleep even after lying down on the floor outside, I could not sleep more than a few minutes, during which the all-merciful God granted me droplets of peace and forbearance. I was awakened by the voices of one of the jailers and of the supervisors as they instructed us to get ready for the morning count of prisoners. We were still in our previous day's dresses and hurried to quickly wash our faces then went out to the prison's courtyard and stood in line with the other inmates of that prison ward. The jailer started to read the names. Prisoner so-and-so, prisoner such-and-such. It was the very first time that we were honored with this new title instead of Miss or Mrs. It truly was a title that stirred all kinds of emotions in me for it signified pride and honor, as well as oppression and tyranny. I felt as if I were in a coronation ceremony to crown me. And while feeling the heavy weight of my crown, I recognized the ultimate honor and glory it held for me. Alhan, describe for me what happened at the release of your mother from prison. 
We were actually outside Iraq. We had left the country when they were released. We had left the country in the beginning of fall, and they were released the following summer. The time we left, we really had no hope of their release because they were told over and over and over if they did not recant their belief in the Baha'i faith, they might as well dig their graves in prison because they would never be released. We had really given up hope at that time, and it was a big surprise when they were released in the following July. We had missed the excitement of really receiving them at home and all that. And mom describes, you know, her feelings of joy for being free at last, but going home to see only relatives or friends welcoming them, but not her children. Her emotions were mixed between joy and ultimate sadness for not having her children with her. We were in Italy at that time waiting for our visas. We had entered later on the U.S. as refugees under religious persecution. So all the paperwork was almost done, and it was a very confusing moment for us. Should we go back home that our parents are released? Or should we just continue our journey to the U.S. and hope that they would meet us here? And the decision was is to continue to the U.S. in that hope. But that took many other years, unfortunately, for that dream to happen. Your father had a 20-year sentence, you said? Yes, but they were all released at the same time. Do you know what precipitated the release at the same time? Yes. Saddam Hussein actually was the vice president when they were imprisoned. But then he became the president and he wanted to celebrate his victory by releasing a large number of prisoners. This time the Baha'is were included. All the other times others were released, the Baha'is were excluded. Eventually, the very last time, the Baha'is were included with those released. And did your father also go to the U.S. Uh, as well as yes. your mother? Yeah. Yes, they were released in the end of 79, but they could not come to the U.S. Their names actually were put in the blacklist like all the other prisoners, so they were denied departure from Iraq until 1990. With a series of miraculous events, People were allowed to reapply for passports, and with the help of my sister Roa and brother-in-law, Brad Pokorny, I might leave that part for Roa to explain how they were able to persuade the American embassy to grant them visiting visa, which they had refused them at first. By that time, all three children had become American citizens, and according to the regulations at the time, we had every right to bring our biological parents to the U.S. and then granting them citizenship would be semi-automatic. And that was not a problem at all for the American government. They would have wanted them to leave Iraq officially with an immigration visa. With lack of communication with our parents, because we really were very, very cautious about how much to say over the phone when we spoke with them, whenever we had any communication with them, 
I was not able to ask them directly whether or not they had any plans of coming and staying. And we were also afraid if we were to speak openly about them leaving Iraq indefinitely, that that might be problematic for the Iraqi government. So I had to find a way to convince the American government to let them come on a visitor's visa, even though with the understanding at the time that they most probably would have come to stay on permanent basis. And we had to communicate through very sensitive telephone lines so that the American embassy would know what's going on and would explain that to our parents on a visitor's visa, but they ended up applying for immigration status and they ended up staying permanently after that until they passed away. Alhan, where can people find the book without hesitation? They can go either to the Baha'i Publishing Trust, the bookstore, that's one source. The other source is it is being sold in Amazon and also Barnes and Noble. And I heard there are other bookstores also, but these three are available. And finally, Alhan, what do you want people to come away with when they read Without Hesitation? Without Hesitation is a story of patience, courage, steadfastness, uh, you know, in the face of religious prejudice. Also, the most importantly is the sacrifice that, you know, many did. So I would like them to be inspired. That's my aim is I want the reader to be inspired. My mom did a very good job taking the reader to really feel the events, to think like a prisoner and to just understand what it's like, especially for an innocent person to be incarcerated. I can also just read you just a little uh, note that came from one of the readers of the book to give you an idea. She says, it is an absolute page turner. The reader cannot but live through every page and experience the pain, utter frustration, hopelessness of the long six years, and also marvel at the courage and fortitude of these spiritual giants. Um, There are many prisoners at this time still in Iran. Hopefully we can, by just reading this book, think of them and their families, because their families also suffer just as much from our experience. Thank you, Elhan. And thank you, Abir, and thank you, Ruwa, for sharing your mother's account in the book Without Hesitation. Thank you so much. Thank, Thank you, you for so having much. us. You're very welcome. Thank you for giving us the opportunity. You're welcome. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Alhan Irwin, along with her brother Abir Majid and sister Ruwa Bakorni. Alhan translated her mother's memoir without hesitation, which is about the imprisonment of Anissa Abdul Razak Abbas for being a Baha'i in Iraq. You can find this interview and other interviews on the website abahaiperspective.com and on the YouTube channel. A Baha'i Perspective. You can also find the podcast on Spotify and iTunes. For information specifically on the Baha'i Faith, you can go to the website baha'i.org or you can call the number 1-800-22-UNITE.
I hope you'll join me next time on a Baha'i Perspective.
thou walk in the ways of them that are content with my pleasure. How canst thou walk in the ways of them that are content with my pleasure? Son of man Son of man And did trials afflict Longing to meet me, how wilt thou attain the light in thy love for my beauty? Ooh. Son of 